the fast exam can be misleading. The biggest pothole that we encounter is malpractice. So what are the medical legal issues here? The clock is running right now. Time is muscle, baby. You need to kick them in the shin. It is your worst nightmare. And that was sort of a dictum. Was it a dictum or was it a rectum? Hello and welcome. Rick Bucata on the line. Greg Henry. And Melvis Herbert. Hello, ladies. We're coming to you via Skype again. It is the, what is this, around the 11th of January? So we're running a little late for the January issue. And Rick, remember, you've been such a cheapskate that you're not flying me out to California anymore for these things. My God, it's cold here in Michigan. We heard that you really like the cold and that yeah. uh, you like the fire and a hot toddy beside the fire there. So we thought we'd keep you there for a while. Well, you certainly driven me inside. There's no question about that. Did you all have a good holiday season, gentlemen? Absolutely. We had lots of family in town. The weather was nice, although we did have that period of two weeks of rain. And Greg and I were just talking about the fact that in my home country, Australia has basically turned into an inland sea the size of Texas. And the saltwater crocodiles are moving inland and the poisonous snakes have taken refuge in, I think, your house, Mel. I mean, it's become really quite a snake pit. That's right. A den of thieves. Now, we uh, finished off doing trauma last month and we've got more to do. Is that right, Rick? Yeah, we were doing these pearls of opportunities to screw up in the setting of trauma. And I think we got through, was it four of them or three of them? We did three of the nine, Rick. We were not terribly productive, but we're set to do a better job this month. All right, Greg, you have, I think, the number fourth. Well, it's interesting that number four has to do with beware of the paradoxical bradycardia syndrome and hypovolemic shock. I knew I was doing one this month, and lo and behold... In the last two weeks, I've gotten two cases into review, both of them having to do with trauma and both having to do with this issue. And the issue is simply this. Can you take everything we learned in physiology class and apply it to the trauma patient? If we've dropped the volume and we apply Ohm's law or a variant of Ohm's law to any pressure system, We probably, as the volume goes down to maintain pressure, we ought to see the heart rate go up. I mean, tachycardia, it's what we're all looking for, right? Just understand this. In my career and in everybody I know, it's a coin flip. If you think that you're always going to get tachycardia with hypovolemia, the answer is no way in hell. And I don't know why it is that certain areas of the body give you that bradycardia syndrome, but at least in my clinical experience, bleeding into the pelvis, particularly ruptured ectopics, that sort of thing, have given you a bradycardia, not a tachycardia. I haven't seen a good explanation for this, but it happens. And what we want to point out here is clinicians may be misled thinking that hypotension has to be accompanied with tachycardia. Nothing could be further from the truth. There's a few articles here about that. One is the Lay article, which was in the Journal of Trauma, November 2009. In this article, they look at this exact question. They look at injury severity scores averaging about 19.4. And what it showed was, very simply, it can be at least 25, 26% wrong. These are people who are genuinely hypovolemic and are not tachycardic. 
And I think the only conclusion you can draw is this relative bradycardia was common in this group of patients. It's not like it's every now and then. You're talking about one out of four. That's a big number, by the way. It was paradoxical because as the heart rate went below 60, the prognosis of the patient was worse. So let's think about it. Patients in shock, patients who ought to have a tachycardia, if their actual heart rate was below 60, their chances of doing badly went up. As the pulse rate went down, the badness went up. This isn't new stuff, Rick. If you look at these other articles, there's one from 1987, 1990. None of this is new. I remember when Trunky was down at San Diego. He was talking about this back in the 70s. So I don't think there's anything new on the horizon. What it is is we just forget about it. Yeah, it's a definite trap, I think, for physicians. And I think one of the key terms is relative bradycardia. You have a person who's got a 90 over 70 blood pressure. It's a 30-year-old woman. So, well, that's their normal blood pressure because look at the pulse is 80. When in fact, she is hemorrhaging and you would expect the 95 or 100, 110 tachycardia. So the, the key here, I think, is relative bradycardia. It doesn't have to be absolute, although as you acknowledge, when it does become absolute, you've got big problems. You've got real big problems. But I think yeah. the key here is for us to be aware of this entity, and I think it is not rare. Yes, we don't really understand it, but it's not something that we should be unaware of because it could lead us down a path of false security that ah, this person's normal blood pressure when, in fact, it isn't. Well, I actually have, as I said, two cases which have come in, and this finding is present in both cases. And we're talking about men and women. I've got one who's a 28-year-old male involved in an auto accident and of course he's thrown out of his truck and it's about 10 degrees outside sort of michigan weather he's sitting around getting more and more vasoconstricted and they note when they bring him in the hospital that the pulse ox little clothespin on his finger doesn't work simply because he's so vasoconstricted and yet they felt well this isn't so bad his pulse rate's only 98 however his blood pressure was 76 over 40 so they thought he was probably relatively stable at that time. Nothing could be further from the truth. In about 14 minutes, I believe he was in arrest. One of the things that had been shown in the early papers is that they thought this was limited to intra-abdominal bleeding, that there were some primitive nerve ends that were stimulated by intra-abdominal blood, intraperitoneal bleeding, and it was kind of unique to ectopics, and that's kind of what people thought. But the fact of the matter is is that this has been demonstrated in people who have had major lacerations of their leg where they're just losing lots of blood, free bleeding outside of the body, and they still wound up with this phenomenon. So we don't really know why, but you really, really, really need to be aware of it so you don't get into this trap. Well, it was also said for a while that this was only blunt trauma or free bleeding from an atopic, that penetrating trauma wouldn't do this. Absolutely wrong. The Snyder article here, the Journal of Emergency Medicine in 89, looked at only penetrating abdominal injuries. And those people had just as much relative bradycardia as any other group of patients. So do not be deceived in thinking this is a blunt trauma syndrome of some kind. By the way, I still don't understand the physiology of it, but all I know is it's what's observed and what happens, and just don't be fooled by it. If they had badness, if they had a bad accident, don't be lulled by reasonably comfortable vital signs. They can drop like a stone on you. 
Now, are these two cases you've got, Greg, as this uh, paradoxical bradycardia or relative bradycardia a part of the lawsuit itself or just part of the case in and of itself? Well, it's actually referenced in the summons and complaint in the document saying they knew or should have known about this relative bradycardia syndrome. I'm sure that the plaintiff side of this has somebody who is advising them that this exists. And they were lulled into thinking, and they use that phrase, lulled into believing the patient was stable to go to CT scan because of the vital sign that he had, that the patient was not tachycardic. So it will be a debated issue in these cases. Mel, you've got number five. Yes, number five is about trauma patients and what we should do prior to transferring them. This is actually a big deal, not for those of us that work in large trauma centers, but for those people who work in the majority of emergency departments, sending potentially sick patients to trauma centers. So here's one of the questions is, what should we be expecting in the trauma center, these docs in the community to do before they transfer us a trauma patient? So you're out in the middle of nowhere and the truck flips over and you've got this person in front of you and you do a reasonable ED workup. Is there anything extra that we should expect those patients to undergo in order to make sure that their transport, which may be an hour or two or three, to the trauma center is safe? And there's not a lot of good studies on this, but people have done this for a while, like Rick and Greg, have suggested that as long as you've got a good doc on the other end, if they say they're stable and they're going to send the patient over to you, that should be enough. Because to try and run this trauma or whatever, even a medical case, over the phone and have these people do ridiculous tests just to make yourself feel better is silly. And so this asks the question, what about CT scanning? So the person's in a trauma, or the ER doc there at the other end says, look, I think they're pretty good, chest x-ray's fine, they look stable to me, I want to send them over to you because they need surgery or they need further observation. Should the trauma center demand they get a CT scan? And the summary of this is, nope. All it seems to do, and we've got one article here from the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine, by Ozanku, what's his name? I don't know how to pronounce his name. May 2008 from McMaster. And they said all a a CT scan, a sort of a routine CT scan prior to transfer did on these patients is just significantly delay transfer times from 148 minutes up to 240 minutes. So an extra 100 minutes to get that CT scan. And how often did it change what they were going to do? Basically, never. It almost never changed anything that they needed to do. So again, I think the concept is if you have a reasonably bright emergency physician who says, look, this person is fine, they're stable enough or unstable enough to come to you, routine CT scanning in this study really didn't help the person. And so this is actually one of my pet peeves when it's not so much now, but back in the old days when the residents used to take the call, they would ask these poor community docs, I want you to send a CBC, a serum rhubarb, I want you to scan everything and call me back in eight hours when all that's done after my shift's over and then we'll accept the patient. And really the response should be send them. Yeah, Dr. Anzuka, we feel badly about butchering your name early on, but the point is still well made. Again, I hate to think of it, I'm referencing Donald Trunkey twice in the same program here. But Don Trunke published a study back in the 70s, which looked at that exact question. He basically concluded that all these films, you know, they have a wrist, they have a shoulder of this or that. What the hell were they doing there? And he referred to it as the acute wallet biopsy, you know, film everything and then ship them out. I think the truth is there's one film that's needed to make sure that they don't have a pneumothorax you've got to take care of before they go. Shooting the pelvis probably makes no difference. 
doing a CT of the head probably makes no difference. And I don't know why you would do a CT of the abdomen, because if you can't treat it there, just move the case on to someplace that can. And I can't think of anything that we can't essentially splint and tape and ship on. And I can't think of a blood study that decides whether I need to transfer that case. It takes six to eight hours for hemoglobins to equilibrate anyway. So I have no idea what you would do with the initial CBC. There are plenty of people bleeding to death whose initial CBC is normal. You know, I can tell you that our trauma surgeon, Kenji Anaba, who runs the trauma training service in the ICU there, his basic spiel to a community ER doc that wants to send a patient that they believe is sick is simply this. Do you think the person is stable, yes or no? And if you don't think they're stable, are you sending them because you can't fix it there? And that's all. He doesn't ask for any tests. That's all he asks. And it works well. And when the person gets to our trauma center, we try and teach the residents. And our mindset is we're starting again. We're going to go from top to bottom. We're going to do our primary survey and secondary survey. And yes, we'll look at all the tests and stuff they've done. But we basically treat it as a brand new trauma patient. That's the only way to do it. The reason they're there is because somebody thought they were sick or they didn't have the resources to look after them. So start again. I want to know right now from your perspective, because you're a big center. You're one of the biggest centers in the United States. When they hit your door, do they ever resuscitate them in the operating room? Or is the decision is they've got to be worked up in the emergency department? There's two ways, actually, they transfer. Some of them are ER to ER and some of them are ER to ICU. So I couldn't tell you exactly what the numbers is because it seems to depend on which way they go. But the ER, the ER ones, we start again and do our thing. But the ER to ICU can sometimes occur, but that completely bypasses us. It goes through the MAC center. They talk directly to the trauma surgeons and they send them straight up to their ICU. We don't even see them go through the ER. So what are the medical legal issues here? The idea here is unnecessary delay. And the literature on this is very, very clear that unnecessary delay is frequent and that many times the community hospital doctors have misconceptions about what the university doctors are going to want. And so they view that, well, we have to do it for Mtala. We have to do it. They're going to want it. We did a paper in the abstracts that specifically looked at the understanding of the community doctors. And there was all kinds of misconceptions about why testing should be done at the local hospital and the whole idea here is to dispel this. And I agree with you, Al, that in the old days when the residents were taking the call, I was at one of the community hospitals where you would call in and they would say, we'd like you to repeat a CBC kind of thing, which would drive you just absolutely nuts. Because you're there you had a very junior doctor telling a, you know, a very old fart doctor what he needed to do, which was annoying in itself. And on top of it, it wasn't going to change anything. Our job was to get them out of there as quickly as possible. Yeah, I think the one thing is to understand that we're only great in the surroundings that we put ourselves in. It's real easy to be the great trauma doctor when you've got nurses, techs, you've got a surgeon ready to go, you've got an OR, you've got all that sort of thing. I've been at small hospitals with badly injured patients, and let me tell you, it is your worst nightmare. You need to get them out of there because if you can't fix it, Get them someplace they can. And Rick, you were talking about this being a sort of an urban myth. Well, this is the rural myth. The rural myth is here in the rural area, we got to do a bunch of things or they won't take them at the trauma centers. That's stuff left over from 20 years ago. And anybody whose trauma center is asking the local docs to repeat a bunch of stuff like this, you need to be taken out and spanked because it's wrong. It's just wrong. 
There's another article here that we have from the abstracts, which is about the f- impact of delayed transfer of critically ill patients from the emergency department to the ICU. This was a big paper a number of years ago that said, if you delay getting patients to the ICU, sick patients, and they get delayed for a number of reasons, there's overcrowding, the bed's not ready, those delays are associated with significant increases in mortality. The concept being that ICU people do ICU things very well. They have algorithms and they're much better than the emergency department for really sick patients after the first sort of hour or so. So the same kind of logic follows that if the person is in another hospital and they really need a surgical ICU, you need them to get them the hell out of there to the surgical ICU, not screw around in the little hospital that doesn't have the nursing and other resources to get it done. So it's sort of tangentially related that says the best place for sick medical patients and sick trauma patients is in a place that does look after those people all the time. And in this case, it would be like a surgical ICU. So get them out of there and get them to the right place fast. So we don't want you to screw up and delay the patient's opportunity to be cared for appropriately by you feeling that you need to do a bunch of stuff. And if your local trauma center is asking you to do a bunch of stuff, you need to kind of kick them in the shins and tell them to get with the program. Talk to Mel and talk to Dr. What's his name? Kenji Inaba. Yeah, you talk to Dr. Inaba. He'll straighten you right out. Exactly. All right, moving on. Number six is, and it's actually one of my pets, it's inappropriate fear of giving typo or type-specific blood to exsanguinating patients. And I've seen this in the past where physicians, you would think that this is a horrible thing to do and extraordinarily dangerous and you really, really better be sure about what you're doing. And to make it even worse, the hospitals oftentimes, as soon as that you tell the lab you want type-specific blood, the head of the lab comes down, they're giving you a paper, they want you to sign here, sign here, sign here, like you're going to give away your firstborn kid, which would not be all that bad. But the fact of the matter is, is they actively reinforce that this is a dangerous thing and to understand, doctor, what you're about to do here. And yet the literature on this is extraordinarily clear. This issue of... And it's been clear, Rick, for a long time. Since this, the this 70s. Isn't anything. Since the 70s. There was a study done in the study, I think it's in the database, that looks at this question and basically says, if you just do RH and ABO, which takes about eight minutes or 10 minutes, you've eliminated 99.5% of all transfusion reactions. That's it. And if they're dying, (laughs) give it to them. Well, there's a paper in our database that looked at 27,000 types and cross matches looking for antibodies that would potentially result in a hemolytic transfusion reaction. Those are the bad guys. All these other reactions are really not that big a deal. In the setting of giving type-specific blood, 0.01%. What is that? It's that one in in 10,000. One in 10,000. I'll take those odds, but please do not put yourself in a position where you're going to be criticized because you felt giving uncross-matched blood was too dangerous. Certainly, ideally, you're going to give type-specific blood. If you can't give type-specific blood for the women, you're going to give O-negative. If they're going to have other children for the men, they can have O-positive. But type-specific, it's the way to go. And most of the trauma centers now have ready access to type-specific blood. Mel, you have a kind of packs of that stuff around? Yep. We can get it very quickly. We have O positive and O negative for the crashing and dying, but we can get type-specific very quickly. And yeah, the papers on this are really pretty overwhelming. If you need it, then just give it. Mel, what do you mean quickly in your institution? Are we talking 15 minutes? 
Yeah, then that that's, in that kind of time frame. Yeah. I can get you O negative right now, and then 15 minutes I can get you type specific, and then about 45 minutes an hour later I can get you type specific and test it up the yin-yang for every antibody that exists in the world. Yep, that's our number, that if you actually want ABO grouping and RH, they'll have that to you in 10 minutes. And it's rare that we need something faster than that, but 10 minutes about that time if you want an actual true cross match which you know looks for kel and buffy and all those other antigens that's going to take you 50 minutes and and there's not much you're going to do about that well the police department we used to do their physicals and they always basically wanted to have as part of their physical a blood type because they wanted to put in their wallet i'm blood type b positive so that when i get shot you can look at my wallet and that's the blood that you can give me kind of thing and i kept on trying to convince them that that was a total waste of time the only thing we're interested in in your wallet is your insurance card that's it we're (laughs) certainly not going to be giving you blood based on some kind of card we fell upon and you're right it's a matter of minutes to determine a your blood type and your rh factor so it's straightforward please do not get yourself into the situation where you will be criticized for delaying this extraordinarily safe procedure number seven seven next point The FAST exam can be misleading. Hello, why does this come as a surprise to somebody? The issue here is very clear. There can be an undue reliance in the young who haven't seen this go bad on the use of the negative FAST exam. The FAST exam, when it's positive, is not a problem. When the mechanism of injury is such that you can suspect a bad exam and the patient looks like crap, I don't care what the FAST exam shows. There's something wrong. First article here is, is the FAST exam reliable in severely injured patients? This is the Becker article, May 2010. This is new and it's hot stuff. But, you know, we have a history now with the FAST exam. People are using it a lot. We've got at least a 15-year history with this. And the results were very clear. Uh, This is out of the University of Miami. And it's a pretty big study. They're looking at 3,000 hemodynamically stable blunt trauma patients, they were wrong at least in one out of 20 patients. If you look at what happened, there's somebody going downhill and the FAST exam was read as negative. Again, FAST exam read positive is not a problem. There are very few false positives. But when you have a false negative, look at the patient, do the exam again or do something else and definitely, if that patient has unstable vital signs, you got a whole different situation going on. By the way, it isn't just emergency docs. If you look at the Gardner article from the Journal of Trauma, and again, recent article, 2009, said to do with ultrasound performed by radiologists. These are the big guys, the ones who get the money for it, confirming the truth about the FAST exam. What does it look like? Well, you know what? The blunt trauma was big in their series. That's pretty much they're looking at. But again, the FAST exam, if somebody was hemodynamically unstable, the FAST exam was wrong. So I think what we have to do is not be led down the garden path of saying, FAST exam, okay, no injury. If the mechanism is such, the exam is such, the physical exam is such, the vital signs are such, you know, the surgeons may have to go in and take a look. Well, you don't have any argument from me. No, I think we have to be a little careful because we have sort of jumped on this technology. It is fantastic. It is incredibly useful. 
but don't believe for a second that it's 100% sensitive because it's not. And I can tell you lots of cases where we've had very sick patients where it's negative, either because you're not as good as you think you are or because there's some other complication there or it initially was negative and then, you know, 20 minutes later, there's a barrel full of blood there. So it's part of the overall assessment. And if your assessment is this person's sick and the fast is positive, that's pretty good evidence this person needs to go to the OR. But if they're sick and it's negative, they're still sick. Yeah, it's only a technique. Like any test, it can be wrong. There can be variations. And I think we've come to a bad spot when we're not willing to clinically operate on patients who are going down the tube. And before there was a fast exam, before there was a CT, they used to explore the abdomen. And the patient's stable and they're looking fine. That's terrific. Then you have time to do other things, put them through the CT scanner, all kinds of stuff. But sort of the bottom line is, but they're going down the tube. I know what I want done. I want them to open and take a look because with a look, they can solve a lot of problems. Stopping bleeding is something our surgeons are pretty good at and we ought to give them the chance. Yeah, I can tell you we've had one case that'll stick in my mind until the day I die. A number of cases where the person was really sick, and this was a little baby, actually a four-month-old, looked like they were bleeding to death, and we kept doing fast exams, and they were negative. And this same Kenji Anaba, my friend, came down and did a diagnostic peritoneal aspirate on this kid, put a needle into their belly, sucked back, and was frank blood in there, took them to the OR, and they had a big, giant bleed. And that fast was repeatedly negative on a kid when it should have been grossly positive. For this day, I don't know why it was negative, but it was negative. And so although this is sort of a non-invasive way of doing diagnostic peritoneal aspirates, every now and then you still have to do the diagnostic peritoneal aspirate or take them to the OR, depending on where you're working. So it's a problem because I think there's a group of people who are now graduating who believe it's 100% sensitive. It's not. It's very good, but it's not 100%. Yeah, here's the problem, Mel. You've got a group of people graduating who've never done a diagnostic peritoneal lavage. I mean, all of us who are old, Rick and I <laughs> on this call, are clearly the example. But the first half of our careers, we tap the belly. So many finger breaths above the umbilicus or below the umbilicus, and we put that in, ran fluid in. And do you remember, Rick, we used to check and see whether you could read newsprint through the fluid to decide whether they needed to go to the operating room? And yeah. that was the common way it was done. Yeah, that was also the Stone Age. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, now wait a minute. We diagnosed a lot of people that way and sent a lot of them to the operating room and a lot of them got saved. It's just a skill which is not bad to have. As you pointed out, your trauma surgeon, when the fast exams were negative, stuck a needle in and found out. Yep, saved that kid's life. All right, shall we do the next one? The next one is about, I know this is Greg's favorite topic, and that is the digital rectal exam. He loves this. So we've been told that a thorough trauma assessment involves the placing of fingers and toes into every orifice. And one of those orifices, orifi, is sticking your finger in a person's rectum. We've been told that if you don't do that, you're doing an inadequate exam. And we've been told if you don't do that, you are going to miss significant injuries, whether they're urethral injuries, spinal cord injuries, this kind of stuff. But does that hold up to the bright light of the medical literature? And the answer is no. Every study that I know that looks at this says it doesn't work. And we've got a series of them here that we can run through quickly. I know we've talked about this before, so let's just go through it very quickly. So here's one from Injury September 2009 by a guy called Ball, and it's traumatic urethral injuries. Does the rectal examination really help us? They had about 41 trauma patients with urethral disruption, and they found that the rectal examination was abnormal in exactly one 
out of 42 of them. So if you're using the rectal exam to diagnose a urethral injury, you're missing the overwhelming majority of cases. So the rectal exam cannot rule out in any way a urethral injury. It's absolutely useless. If you look at other studies, and a number here by Gil Salamowitz, who actually comes and he trained at UCLA and comes to lecture to us at USC quite a bit. He's got some pediatric papers in pediatric emergency care and adult papers, and I think one of the biggest that's ever been done, of 1,400 trauma patients. And they looked at the sensitivity and specificity of the rectal exam for lots of things, whether it's for urethral injury, whether for spinal cord injury, bowel injury, pelvic disruption. And they found that it was useless, that its sensitivity was about 20% for most of these things. So another study that says it doesn't work. What about for spinal cord injury? Well, here, the numbers are a little bit different, but they say that even here in a spinal cord injured patient, it's only about 50% sensitive at the high end and maybe 20% at the low end. So again, you can't use it to rule out the diagnosis. You can't even really use it to rule in most of these diagnoses. Now, you've got to understand that they exclude in most of these articles patients with rectal trauma. So, okay, so if somebody gets shot in the butt, I think it's a reasonable thing to have a look in the butt and do a full examination. But as a routine, using a rectal exam as a screen for a urethral injury, a pelvic injury, a spinal cord injury is not going to get it done. You have to have other triggers to decide if they have those injuries. You can't use a rectal exam and the good news is that in the latest edition, I believe it's the eighth edition of the ATLS manual, they basically are now are on board with this overwhelming evidence that's been around for 20 years saying this does not have to be a routine. It can be used when you decide it's going to give you extra information. But as a routine, it is useless. When you enter the hallway at the College of Surgeons, they have a notice there that says you've entered a different time zone, set your watch back 20 years. It's taken a long time to come around on this. But you made one point, Mel, we ought to hit again, though, that if you do think there's a spinal injury, you don't have to do a rectal exam. If they actually have a response where they get an anal wink, the skin moves when you stroke that skin, there's no reason to have to put your finger inside. If there's serious consideration from other reasons that there might be a spinal cord injury, it's just not good enough to say it's there or it isn't. But certainly, if what you're looking for is compression of the spinal cord or the spinal roots, uh, looking for anal wink and checking that sensation are just as good as actually having to stick your finger inside the rectum. So if we've done anything here today, we've put the kibosh on the rectal exam as necessary. And I can remember as a medical student, this is, of course, back in the late 60s, early 70s, when they actually said to you, if you haven't done a rectal, you haven't examined the trauma patient. And that was sort of a dictum at that moment in time. And you never wanted to admit that you hadn't done the rectal exam. Was it a dictum or was it a rectum? Didn't it, well, it, Oh, yeah. yeah, there's never a drummer around when you need them, is there? Okay. Well, yes. this is good stuff to know. I think it's important that we not just blindly follow the beliefs of our forefathers and that we look at the science behind this stuff. And we kind of all intuited this. There are two issues, I think. One of them is if you're ever criticized for not doing a rectal, the literature supporting you're not doing it is overwhelming. Secondly, this is a test, and tests have indications. The idea of doing this test on every person who has been declared a trauma triage candidate is just utterly ridiculous. The other thing is, is that we did a paper one time that looked at physicians' ability to determine 
whether somebody's sphincter tone was normal. I can tell you the result of that study said that doctors were all over the dartboard in determining, yes, that sphincter tone is normal. No, that isn't sphincter. I think we clearly need to do a lot more rectals to determine, get our baseline exam down as to what is a normal sphincter tone. And then lastly, if you have somebody who's got a spinal injury, before I'm looking at any winks or, or anything like that, what about the legs? Can they move their legs? they feel any numbness down there or anything like that? It would be hard for me to conceive different, that there's a absolute nerve no- roots, Rick. It's different hard. nerve roots. It's hard for uh, me to conceive this. Well, let me just tell you that S3 and 4 are not reflected in the legs. They're reflected around the rectum. You're right. If you're talking about L1 or S1, S2, you can look at specific motor roots in the legs. That's not true for S3 and S4. So these are just some of the finer points of the examination, and it's not common but it is not as easy as we'd like to think it is. Is uh, Dr. Henry the one who said S3, S4, stool on the floor? Yes. <laughs> it wasn't me who said it, but I support that. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Moving on. Number nine, compartment syndromes are easily overlooked in the multiple trauma patients, largely because we're focusing on the head, the neck, the chest, the belly, and the extremities. Ah, you always get to them when you have a chance to. So you're hopefully going to pick these up in the secondary surveys. But the fact of the matter is, is that you don't have very much time. The clock is running. One of our papers here specifically addressed how long does it take muscle necrosis to develop? And this is a paper in our database by Dr. Villancourt, who we know, Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. In his study of 76 patients, they found that muscle necrosis can develop within three hours after injury in more than one-third of the patients. So you can't putz around for a long period of time in these cases. Mel, you'd be pleased to know that in the Australian New Zealand Journal of Surgery, one of these issues in 2010, which is by Dr. Wall, also in our database, they came up with some multidisciplinary guidelines to pick up these injuries. They point out that there are certainly patients who are high risk. Males below 35 with a fracture of the tibia and their radius or ulna or with soft tissue injury plus a bleeding disorder, make you nervous, generally because these injuries are associated with a fair amount of intensity with regards to their trauma. They also point out that crush injuries should make you consider this diagnosis, prolonged limb compression. Every four hours, they suggest in their guidelines that a person be checked for this injury in some systematic disorder. Methods that might prevent this syndrome include removing circumferential bands, Watch out for splints that involve plaster that may be compromising circulation. Position of the limb at the level of the heart. Maintenance of normal tension and high flow oxygen are all considered to be good if these oxygenations and blood pressure are not of themselves normal. They point out with regards to picking up this diagnosis, they talk about all of these P's. Well, some of these P's are really more important than others. Palpable tenseness or swelling is one of the P's of the compartment. Pain out of proportion to the injury. There's about three or four things that I know where the pain is out of proportion to the findings or the injury. One of them is, and we've done these before, fasciitis could have pain out of proportion to the injury. Ischemic bowel can have pain out of proportion to the injury. And compartment syndromes can have pain out of proportion to the findings as well. They talk about paresthesias of the skin or paresis of the muscle supplied by the involved nerves. Supplied by the involved nerves is the key here. Pallor of the skin overlying the compartment. Pallor of the skin 
in the setting of palpable pulses. Because one of the five P's that people often say is the pulses, pulselessness. Well, this suggests that you can have a compartment syndrome with pulses being appreciated. So you can also get nicely misled by this. I have another paper here that says, think of it in the setting of intraosseous infusion. There we have a pediatric paper that talks about that. And compartment syndromes in the setting of anticoagulated patients. Now, when you talk about anticoagulated patients, it's not just the warfarin patients. Now we got the whole world is on Plavix kind of thing. And that person should probably have an increased heads up for whether this is developing in the setting of extremity injuries. By the way, within two years, I think that Coumadin is going to go the way of the buffalo. We've got several other orals that are coming down the pike. And with fewer and fewer complications, we may see more and more people on these medications. And it's not just the young athletic kinds of things. It's grandma who's twisted her ankle, who's slipped on the stairs, that sort of thing. I would reiterate that one of the worst cases of a compartment syndrome I saw was in a young man, this is a medical legal case, who was a place kicker in high school, kicked 200 balls a night. So he had a repetitive type of process. He sat down there, kicked those balls, and he called his dad. He was in terrible pain, went in the emergency department. They did an x-ray looking for the tib-fib fracter. It wasn't there. But what was there is that continuous beating of the ball with his foot, and he went on to lose most of the muscle in that leg. And if he was only out of the emergency department and back in, I think it was four hours. By the time the surgeons went back in, he lost most of the muscle in his lower leg. I think that people think that the amount of time needed for necrosis of muscle is longer than it appears to be. 30% have death within three hours. Right. No, it's frightening. When you think about it, act on it. Mel, are you training the residents to take compartmental pressures now as a part of their training? Yeah, that's sort of a standard part of their training. One of the new concepts is it used to be you use something like a striker device. There's different manufacturers, but that's the one we have. And you put it in and it tells you your compartment pressure and over 30 was bad. But now the new concept is, and it's much more important, is you've got to look for uh, the difference between that pressure and their diastolic pressure. Because if their blood pressure is 90 on 40 and their mean arterial pressure is really low and they've got a reasonably high compartment pressure, then it may be less than 30, but still they're not getting sufficient blood flow. So people now talk about this delta compartment pressure between their diastolic or their mean arterial pressure and their compartment pressure. So it doesn't really matter. You can look up what the numbers are. But the point is, yes, we do teach them. The problem is that getting that a striker into the right compartment actually can be very difficult. There's a lot of compartments in the leg that are very difficult to get at. So you have to know how to do it or you have to get somebody to help you do it. So a lot of the time, I think if you don't know how to do it, you don't have the equipment, you're at a smaller place, you just have to drag an orthopedic surgeon or some other person who knows the anatomy and who has the equipment to come and check that pressure. You cannot wait. Like you say, that horrible ischemic pain that they're having is because the muscle's already dying. So it's not a question of, I've got three or four hours to fix this. The clock is running right now. Time is muscle, baby. Yeah, I think that's probably the case. And the other thing is, even if you learn to do it in your residency, when you get out, if you're not doing it on a regular basis, you lose all those anatomic coordinates that you use to find those compartments. And I'm a conservative on this issue. If I seriously believe there's a compartment syndrome, I want the orthopedic surgeon to come in, check it, do something because I don't want to be holding that bag if there's reasonable suspicion of compartment syndrome. 
Well, gentlemen, that is the nine. We almost had ten commandments. Can you think of a tenth? Come on, help us out here. We got nine uh, commandments. Don't, don't eat peas with your knife. It's dangerous and it looks bad. Okay, there's a tenth <laughs> commandment for you. <laughs> and Mel, do the Australians eat peas with a knife? Are they one of these groups of people that eat with the fork upside down? We have the fork in our left hand, we don't swap hands, and we turn it upside down and scoop it in like a spoon. We do it the right way. You Americans are (laughs) so ignorant with your peeing. It's just one of the things that you don't have right. Such an amazing society, and yet some basics that you keep screwing up on. Yeah, what can I say? What can I say? Gentlemen, let's continue. We have a letter from Joseph Liebman, Joseph, in Israel. Those of you who know of Joseph, he does a kind of um, monthly email-based dissertation on the literature, looking at articles that come out. I'm familiar with the concept. In any case, he's been doing this for a good while. He wrote us a letter regarding a great question. So let's get started here. Do you want to do the letter, Greg? Yeah, I'll do the letter. And this is a big shout out and hello to Yosef. I'm going to be with you guys in two months with the Israel is formed its own, essentially, ASEP. And so I'm one of their invited speakers looking forward to it. We were going to have it back a few months ago, but there was shelling at that time well, or something, actually, so I couldn't go. Actually, you're being fitted for your flak jacket as we speak. You know, you wanted to have yes. it done by a Hong Kong tailor. Right, exactly. And it's either going to be a Canali flak jacket or nothing. But what he says to us is, dear colleagues and gentlemen, so he obviously doesn't know as well, I have been asked in Israel to give a professional opinion about a patient that was told to follow up with GYN for abnormal bleeding, and she did not do so for two months. At that point, she was found to have cervical cancer. What I think might be interesting to the forum is when a patient is told to follow up with a family doc or some other doc, what is their obligation to do so? And if they don't do that, whose problem is this? Can a doctor be responsible if a patient decides to take off and not go through with things? Anyway, he's looking for our comments on this situation, which I think happens every day in the emergency department. 85% of the people we see go home, even at your place, Mel. Most people don't get admitted. What is our obligation in follow-up? Because when I look at all the medical legal cases I've done, this follow-up question is always on the table. Well, I'm a broken record about this. The aftercare instructions that we do and we've used for 25 years say return to this emergency department immediately, immediately, if there's any new or worsening problems. That's pretty straightforward. Anything new, anything worse, you come back here right away. We don't want you to try to make an appointment with your family doctor who's on vacation or the nurse makes it three weeks from now. And so the only variable here is these disorders that should gradually improve over time. Like, say, for example, sprained ankle. It should be a lot better in two weeks. And if it's not a lot better in two weeks, then you should get some care. But I think it's the physician's job to give the time frame by which somebody should follow up. I don't think you can just say follow up with your doctor if you're not getting better. I don't think that makes any sense whatsoever. You have to give them the time frame. They're not little doctors. And so I think in this case, It'll come down to who said what, but the fact of the matter is is that I do think there's an obligation for the physician to say, listen, if this vaginal bleeding is not getting worse or not getting better, but it's still persisting in a week, I want you seen. And they need to get seen then. And if you can't get seen, come back to this emergency department. They always need that out. That safety net is come back here. We'll check it out. Well, I'm going to take Yosef's point here and expand it just a little bit. If I've told them 
that here in the emergency department, I cannot diagnose or I cannot do the completion of the examination. You do need to see somebody. I do expect them to follow through. Now, I'm not sure what a two-month delay in diagnosing cervical cancer actually means, but I think we need to keep in mind the fact, and there's always mission creep. We ought to do this. We ought to do that. I hate getting another issue of one of the journals who say, well, it's now our obligation to take over this or that or something else. You know what? We don't have the time to do a lot of those things. If I've sent somebody back and say, you've got vaginal bleeding, you need to call your gynecologist, you need to be seen in the next couple of weeks, you know what? And I'm speaking to a patient who's awake, alert, carrying on reasonable conversation, has reasonable family. I don't know. How much more can I do at that moment in time? Melvis, jump in on this. <laughs> what can I tell you? I agree. At some point, you can't be the follow-up for the entire planet, even at our place. So you give people reasonable instructions and they have to follow up. But you've always told me, and I think this is correct, that your follow-up instruction should be time and person-specific as much as possible. And once you've done that, really, there's not much else you can do, right? But I agree. But the issue here may be, who said what? Is there something written that says what time frame should be this follow-up occurring? And if there isn't, then the patient might say, well, you never said how long I should wait. Right. I'm only a layman. Well, I think you got to document that. I, you know, I told them to be rechecked, call their OB-GYN doctor tomorrow to get in to report this. But here's what I don't want is a sort of a casual slide that says now we're responsible for everybody. I just heard the deposition of a, I'm going to be as polite as I can here, I'm under new orders to not be rude, but a trauma surgeon who is giving testimony about what an emergency doctor ought to do, and he's saying things like, oh, I call all my patients up, I make sure they followed up. Horseshit. That doesn't happen. We can't be responsible for everybody's care in this society unless you give me a whole lot more resources than you're giving me now. Well, there is truth about this bracket creep here, the idea of checking everybody for domestic violence and HIV and unsafe sex and lack of adequate nutrition. And all of these things are being thrust upon us. Rick, it went crazy a few years ago when they said, you got to measure every kid's head circumference. You realize what a rare event it is to pick up some abnormal head circumference? Come on. Are we going to do all this? They now start talking. There was a couple of articles. And, you know, it's always some pinhead from a university who wants to publish their paper who says, well, we ought to take over all counseling of families for childhood injury in the emergency department. I mean, come on. Give me a break. I mean, I think they ought to wear their bicycle helmets. They ought to be seat belted in. That's all fine. But for you to think that I'm going to be able to counsel each one of these parents on common sense you know what? I think that's going way beyond what we do for a living. Well, we're very lucky to have Richard Boothman on the line with us. Richard is an attorney with University of Michigan, and he was the principal author of this paper that we reviewed, Liability Claims and Costs Before and After Implementation of a Medical Error Disclosure Program, which was in the Annals of Internal Medicine back in August 17th. Richard, thanks for joining us. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. It's my privilege. Well, I understand that you're in Ann Arbor. Is it about 10 degrees there yet? It's close. I actually rode a bike to work today, but boy, it was cold, and we're expecting snow tonight, so it's Michigan. 
I understand that you're a friend of a friend of mine, Greg Henry, who lives down the street from you, and you tell me that his kids babysit your kids or vice versa. His kids babysat my kids, geez, 15 years ago. So you've been at Ann Arbor for a long time. Yes, I actually have lived here since 1981, I think, or 8081. And I practiced, I had an office here, but I practiced in Detroit. And we had an office in Cleveland for a while before I left my private practice in 2001 to come here to the University of Michigan. Well, you're the chief risk officer. What does that mean? Are you in charge of every potential suit or risk-related problem for the entire university? Actually, my portfolio, if you will, is flexible and it seems to grow every day. Um, I essentially sit at the intersection of patient safety, patient injuries, patient claims, and peer review. So I get involved in all of those things personally. I often find myself mediating between medical services. For instance, right now I'm very involved in mediating between the pediatric intensive care folks and the pediatric surgeons. So I get involved in a lot of things. Among the things I have as a primary responsibility is oversight of our entire malpractice system or program. And if you think of it in broad terms, essentially responsibility for our institution's response and manner of responding to patient injuries. This paper talked about a program that was implemented over time. Were you one of the prime movers of this program? Yeah, I think you can say that. Well, first, I did not bring ethics to the University of Michigan, so I don't presume to have done that. The University of Michigan was a client of mine for 22 years in my prior life as a trial lawyer, so I knew this organization well. I knew what they stood for and that sort of thing. But I also knew that there was a better way to handle claims and cases, and that's actually how I got here. I was asked to help them find somebody when they had a vacancy in the attorney's office, and I basically said, how do you know who to look for if you don't know what the possibilities are? And I outlined what became our program. Components of that program were already in place. One of my predecessors at Goldman, for instance, had overseen some of the progress, but we did not deal in a systematic way with threatened claims. We were not very proactive. We were very reactive, as most hospitals are. And I knew that we had all of the ingredients to do things differently. So between Christmas and New Year of 2001, I literally outlined the whole flow on a piece of paper that we stretched all around a conference room. And I sat down with the director of risk management and sort of worked out a division of labor and put everything in motion. It has evolved since then considerably, but the basic tenets, the basic principles have not changed at all. One of the things I found so fascinating about your paper is that although this movement of full disclosure is taking traction in the country, I have personally not seen very much in the way of reporting results. And the first paper that we did look at was this paper out of the VA in Kentucky, which is in our database, which basically concluded that I think there were more claims but less dollars paid was the long and short of that. But the problem was it wasn't necessarily extrapolatable to the community at large because it was in a federal system. And I was wondering, you know, how does that work in community hospitals where they're not the same at all? I had not seen anything further basically saying we've done it and it works. And it's very clear to me that we need more papers out there that say we've done it and it works. So there's a couple of things I want to point out concerning what the experience at Lexington and comments that you raised, because those are obviously very important. Steve Craman was chief of staff at the Lexington VA, and I know Steve well. 
In fact, Steve looked me up when news reports started to filter out about our experience. He was very excited because despite his great success at the Lexington VA, oddly, even the VA system did not pick up on that. And for the most part, it did not get any traction even within their own system. It's important to understand there is a big difference between what Steve was doing and what we're doing. The effort on Steve's part was largely directed at managing their claims and managing them in an ethical, proactive way, and it's a concept that we embrace wholeheartedly. We've taken it a big step further, and we've said to ourselves, not only is there value from a claims management perspective, but the real object is to improve our patient care And we believe fundamentally that you cannot improve your patient care in a defensive environment. If you don't acknowledge that you have a problem, if you're not honest with yourself, the first disclosure is with yourself, frankly, even before you think about talking to the patient, if you can't get there, you'll never fix the problem. And I was not surprised when the Institute of Medicine said in 1998 or 99, we have so many deaths from medical errors per year. And then five years later said, we really haven't changed very much. I don't find that surprising because if everyone is afraid to engage in a robust and honest look at this, which yes, does include talking to the patient, we won't improve. And For me, the single driver was not necessarily to improve our claims, but it was to learn the lessons from each of these experiences so that we could continue to improve our patient safety and our quality of care. So I learned a lot from Steve and from talking with Steve. He is an extraordinarily thoughtful and gentle guy who is, I think it's safe to say, frustrated by the fact that it's taken so long to get any traction. And you're right. Rick, when you say that other institutions are not publishing their data, that is very frustrating. I've mentored the University of Illinois in Chicago since 2005. I know Tim McDonald, their main safety officer there, very well. And Dr. McDonald understands it, and he has, at our invitation, dissected our program. But even the University of Illinois has not yet published its data. So I do think that that's very important because on the highway, from the status quo to safer patient care, the biggest pothole that we encounter is the malpractice and the fear that screwing up a case or inviting litigation creates, and it's an impediment to better patient safety. So it is important to publish that data. It's important to demonstrate that the sky does not fall in on your claims when you engage in this. But more importantly, I hope the next paper we publish shows some tangible benefits on the patient safety side. Well, I think your paper makes it very clear that a lot of good things came from this, including some dollar-related things. And one of the things I saw in the paper that interests me is you tried to establish a culture whereby staff at the hospital was free to report anything that they felt might be potentially a problem, a risk, a mistake, those kinds of things. How were you able to achieve that when that's really not the culture that we come from? Because the first thing people say is, well, they're going to blame me or, yeah, it was my mistake. So there's a natural disincentive to want to report and then incriminate yourself. The single most important sales proposition, if you will, and I don't say that cynically, but it was important to be able to say to our doctors, we are always here for you. I'm not a patient advocate per se. I'm hired by the institution to oversee our response to patient injury. My first obligation is to the people I serve, and that's our medical staff and our institution. But I don't serve them very well if I 
present obstacles to improvement if I submit them to litigation needlessly, only to pay after two years or three years of litigation. So essentially, I went to our medical staff and very widely made that case and said, it is critical that we're honest about these things because there's a practical value to you. It enables me to get the case resolved. It enables me to do the right thing by the patient. And frankly, if there isn't a medical mistake, it enables me to explain that to the patient so they don't pursue a bogus claim. In the meantime, by all means, let's stimulate the patient safety apparatus here. I do not ever want to tell doctors, don't talk about this because I'm worried that you're going to cause a complication in the case. I would rather have them be the best that they can be and trust that we know how to take care of the claim. So the culture shift was really to change the reflexes. When there was an unanticipated outcome, I want them first to think, first and foremost, how did this happen and how can we prevent it in the future? I don't want them first to think, oh my God, I'm going to get sued. Got you. There's also the issue of the employees, the nurses and the pharmacists and those folks who can see mistakes happening. And then there's this issue of encouraging them. A nurse might have given the wrong medication to a patient. And the first thing we think about is, I'm going to get blamed for that. And really, was there a system error or not? I'm still going to take heat for this. And recently, I don't know if you've seen this, and I don't frankly recall the hospital that it was being done at, but employees were being incentivized to report errors in some very positive ways in terms of they were getting some kind of remuneration. I don't know whether it was free dinner in the cafeteria or something <laughs> like that to actively report. Because I think one of the keys that you brought up in your paper is active surveillance for errors. So I was more curious as to what active meant. How aggressive could people be in seeking out errors? Because at our hospital in the past, they said to us, you are not reporting enough of your pharmacy-related errors because the error rate should be around here. This is what the national average is, and you are way below it. And it's not because you're so fabulous. It's because you're not reporting. Yeah. And this would come up at meetings with some frequency. Now, I don't know whether that was true or not, but the idea that staff could be encouraged in a very active way to report these errors, because I guess there's all kinds of psychological things about turning in your friends, and it is totally different from the culture that we're used to. Between Christmas and New Year, I got a phone call last year, and the person who called me was a respiratory therapist. She called out of frustration, and she was reporting a doctor who apparently, in her mind, regularly disregarded respiratory therapies recommendations for children on ventilators, I think it was. And she called in tears. And when I talked to her, and I got all the details, and she basically said, this has been going on for many years, and I'm at the end of my wits. I've tried directly talking to him. I've tried talking to his superiors. I'm not getting anywhere, but I'm afraid he's putting patients at risk. And I said to her, why are you crying? Thinking in my mind that she was worried about retribution for herself. She actually said, I don't want him to get fired. He's a superb doctor. I just think that he doesn't respect our role in the care, and I want him to change. And it was so emotional for her that she was actually worried more about the impact on the doctor than she was worried about the impact on herself. I said to her, you may have been in this phone call the best friend this doctor could ever have. He may not hug you right now or embrace you for this. He may be angry that you called, but my guess is that he doesn't behave this way in a vacuum and we need to get our arms around people, not just make them disposable. 
That phone call led directly to an intervention with the doctor, and at first he was resistant. And of course, as we did more investigation, we found out that that respiratory therapist's experience with that doctor was not isolated at all. But the fact that staff don't call means that we don't have an opportunity to fix anything. That physician has had some leadership counseling. That physician has had some great intervention, and he is now one of the most prized physicians in his department. It's changed his career. Only a year later, he's now thanking her for doing that. That's the proposition that we need to make people understand. If we create an environment where we wait until people bottom out, we wait until caregivers who might be challenged finally get to a point where we can't ignore them or turn away anymore, at that point, they're usually too far gone. So we've tried to work very hard instilling a culture here that whether we're talking about safe practices or safe physicians or safe caregivers, it's all the same. We owe it to our patients to not wait until somebody gets hurt. The faster we can get on top of it, the better. Now, as for incentives for reporting, we've certainly never considered paying people to make a report. We have considered making it a responsibility of residents as part of their residency, and that's sort of in the works. That happens to be something that Dr. McDonald at the University of Illinois, along with Dr. Dave Mayer, have done with huge success. And I think they've published recently a small study of their anesthesia residents. I love that idea. But beyond that, I've found that caregivers, for the most part, are in this business because they're passionate about helping others. And if they think that something good will come of it, they'll report. Our reports have exploded over the last few years. I think it was only four or five years ago, we had 2,400 patient safety reports in a year. Last year, 18,000. Wow. That only happens when the staff believes something good will come of it because otherwise they're not going to bother. I know from my own personal experience that if a staff person makes some concerns known about a particular physician, they're often concerned that they will just be swept under the rug because we don't have a program like you're discussing. One of the issues that comes up, particularly here in California, where hospitals really have to contract with physicians and cannot really employ them to provide direct medical care, have you had much experience dealing with doctors who are not insured by the university and therefore may have their insurance company may have a slightly different point of view about full disclosure because they're concerned about the more traditional aspects of litigation? We have a certain percentage of the claims that come to our attention are mixed claims with University of Michigan and non-University of Michigan components. So we have experience both with outside physicians who are independently insured as well as other institutions that have very different corporate cultures. For the first four years or so, I resigned myself to the notion that I was not going to get those people to the table. And for the most part, when we got those kinds of claims in, I just sent them to trial lawyers and let the litigation process handle them. About four years ago, maybe five years ago, I said to myself, we're not getting any traction in the community. People are still hunkered down in this scorched earth kind of approach, and we're losing opportunities for our institution and our staff. So I basically decided I was not going to let these other doctors or institutions drive our ethics and our process, and we started inviting them to come along, but writing them and saying, we have every intention of engaging the patient and the patient's lawyer on an open and honest basis. We'll do our best to stay off your toes, but you are absolutely welcome to join us. And at first, that was met with unbelievable hostility. In fact, somebody once called the regents for the University of Michigan and told them that 
I was reckless and crazy and was crawling into bed with the enemy. Today, we're now seeing a softening of the opposition. We are actually getting outside physicians to participate along with their insurance representatives. And we've even had a couple of hospitals join in with us in a proactive approach. It's important that you understand and that they understand that our approach is not based on expedience. We don't engage somebody looking for an early settlement. We engage them in a very principled way and often are telling people in the so-called disclosure why we don't think there was a medical error. It's important to understand that the whole process is staying in the saddle with patients, even when they're angry with you or trying to cope with the change in their lives, but telling them the truth either way. And that's something that outside doctors and hospitals didn't get right away. They sort of thought that we were just running around with a checkbook trying to cut an easy settlement, and that's not at all what we're doing. What about training of those who speak with the family? I would think that that is a skill that requires some substantial education. And I can envision that you probably just don't let doctors do this willy-nilly and that, in fact, this process is probably quite formally arranged by people who are experienced in just how to talk with families. Yes, we made a conscious decision early on that, for the most part, it was irresponsible to think that we could train a doctor in a half-a-day seminar, and then when it happened to them, they would be able, willing, have the tools available to them to do it in a responsible way. I think even the most socially insightful people, when it happens to them, are not necessarily good to be on their own doing that. So we made a conscious decision. We were not going to just train our staff and then send them out admitting to everything. So there's a couple of realities. One is when we receive news of a patient event, very rarely does the picture of that event turn out to be the same thing by the time we've investigated it as what it looked like when it came in the door. We take great pains to investigate to get everybody's viewpoint and that sort of thing and understand what it is that we're going to say. So I often refer to intelligent disclosures because this isn't just irresponsibly blathering what you think happened. It's very much engaging the patient, promising them the truth, taking care of their needs first, but getting to the bottom of it. We have people trained to do that. And what we want our staff to do is to call risk management rather than try to do it on their own. Risk management may not be visible to the patient. There are some events which are simple enough, clear enough. We think the relationship between patient and doctor is strong enough and the doctor is comfortable doing it that we stay out of it and just let the doctor continue in the physician's relationship with those patients. There are some physicians at the other end of the spectrum who no matter how well you prepare them or inform them, there's just something about them that makes them not so good at this. They're either incredibly threatened or defensive or inclined to blame the patient, who knows what. But we have 10,000 employees or 11,000 employees here, and we have the full range. So we take it on a case-by-case basis. I have risk management consultants who have been formally trained in mediation techniques, which gives them excellent tools for dealing with families in crisis, dealing with caregivers in crisis. We have taught them how to preserve evidence, start responsible investigation, all of the things needed to do this in the right way. Our risk management group is available 24-7. They are almost all of them 
former caregivers themselves, so they understand how the process works. They understand how to speak the language. They understand where information may be buried here and there in a complex health system like ours. So that's how we're handling it. Was the training program developed at the U, or is it something outside that they go to? It's a mix. In fact, we have taken many non-lawyers and put them through a mediation program, which is actually designed for lawyers working in a litigation setting. That program, which is one of the finest in the country, was developed by the Institute for Continuing Legal Education, a consortium of Michigan law schools, starting with the University of Michigan and others. But that program is 60 hours of training with role plays and all sorts of excellent preparation. And I've been through that myself. So it prepares people very well for stepping into these situations and listening, mediating, and trying to move things to the proper conclusion. So all of our risk managers are trained that way. I have trained them in the hard claims handling skills. So personally, I conducted meetings every month for years, training them in things like preservation of evidence and how to negotiate and do the investigation, all sorts of things, dealing with experts. This might be not something that you feel all that comfortable with, but if you were to do this effort over, were there things that really you went down the wrong path and found out that that was really not the way to go and regretted it and that could potentially save others from making the same mistake? Because I think you're way ahead of the vast majority of health systems in the country. Actually, there are smaller things. For instance, we purposefully rebuilt the risk management department with caregivers, reasoning that it was easier to teach them claims than it would be to teach a non-caregiver how to get to the bottom of a case. You know, we define a medical error as what was reasonable under the circumstances. Unlike automobile negligence cases, you can't look at the wreckage or the damage done and know if somebody made a mistake. You can give a child an antibiotic for his first ear infection and cause his death with a severe allergic reaction. And that doesn't mean a caregiver did something wrong or made a medical mistake. So, I reasoned that by using experienced caregivers, they would have a leg up on getting to the bottom of these things and understanding the challenge from the caregiver's perspective, which is critical in our determination of whether it's a medical error or not. I was naive, though, in thinking that that would necessarily prepare them with another skill set that they need to keep investigations moving forward to understand how to talk to experts and that sort of thing. So I think if I were to do this in retrospect, I would not assume that all these things are teachable. I might assemble a team which was more multidisciplinary between lawyers with experience, even paralegals who could help with the gathering of information and that kind of thing, along with some really rock-solid caregivers who were interested in risk management. I might have also kept a better eye on the metrics. I'm not trained as an academician, and Alan Kachalia, who is, when he came to me in, geez, I think that was 2004, 2005, with a Blue Cross grant to start studying our system, was appalled to find out that I didn't have some of the statistical conventions in place. I didn't have definitions. I didn't have a common taxonomy, that sort of stuff. I've learned a lot about that since but it made his job of doing the statistical analysis harder. There were a number of things I did 
intuitively well and that really stand out as important, in retrospect, important things to have done. For instance, I've consulted with other institutions who have not had good luck. One institution in particular that called me up and said, we're doing what you're doing and it's a failure. When I went down to find out what was going on, I realized that they missed an important point that we were careful about, and that was broadcasting widely to our staff that we are here for them, that we're not patient advocates. So that institution that tried to copy what we were doing put in place someone called a patient advocate and nobody would talk to her. The staff didn't trust her because she was a patient advocate and the patients didn't trust her because she was employed by the hospital. So that was a smart thing to do. And I don't think I appreciated how smart it was until, in retrospect, realizing that capturing the trust of your staff is absolutely essential for this. They have to know that you are there for them, that the whole point of this is to make sure that we keep them as safe as possible, if that means doing the right thing by the patient, but plowing all the lessons learned into our quality apparatus so it never happens again. That's the best I can do for them. So that part was very important. Other than that, I think it just takes some savviness about the principles. The other point that I think we were smart about was establishing the three principles which have never changed. The first principle is if we hurt somebody through inappropriate medical care, we owe them an effort to make it as right as we can and as quickly as we can. So we owe them reasonable compensation as quickly as possible. But the flip side is equally true. We must have that other bookend, and that is if the care was reasonable or there's no patient injury, we owe our staff a vigorous defense or every effort to keep them out of litigation without paying or encouraging claims that are groundless. The third principle is the most important, that we learn from these experiences and constantly plow that back in as quickly as possible to our quality improvement apparatus. We started with those three principles. They have not changed, and they really have served as an excellent benchmark for us as we've gone through this experience over the past nine years. I think the passion of your leadership really comes through very, very clearly, and I have to think that that has probably been one of the major reasons that you've been so successful, and I think that you are an extraordinarily strong advocate for doing the right thing, and it's really nice to see that the outcomes that you've been able to publish have been so positive, not only for your university, but for the patients as well, and it's really pretty clear that your focus is much broader than just limiting litigation, but making a safer environment. And I'm sure that the university is in your debt over creating such a wonderful program. And I personally think that this is absolutely wonderful, and I would love to do whatever I could to disseminate it. It's clear that it's not all that easy and that there are nuances to it, but we really have to move in this direction. There are organizations who have said we believe in full disclosure, like Catholic Healthcare West out here has 40-some hospitals, and that's their policy, but it's a big leap from going to saying it and really doing it well. That's very nice of you to say that, Rick. I will tell you, the message is not always well-received. It's hard for people to hear a conclusion that, for instance, our investigation shows maybe they did make a mistake and maybe the patient is owed compensation. But overall, I am deeply humbled by what caregivers do in the trenches every day. They're sticking their necks out in medical care that is inherently risky. There are risks that physicians simply can't control, and we ask them to do a lot of things that are very difficult and really puts themselves out. 
So I'm humbled to be able to help in any way, help them be safer, help them be more comfortable, because in the end, we're all in this together. Well, Richard, I can't thank you enough for participating in this interview. You've given us a lot of really great information, and your passion and energy really comes through as an important element of the success that you've been able to create. Yes, I'm happy to do Wine of the Month. And again, I've taken lots of ridicule, more ridicule about Wine of the Month than any other part of this program. But this will even make Mel happy. Mel, we're going to talk about a California wine or a winery that's producing wine to add 10 bucks a bottle. Now you're talking. Are we happy now, Mel? Yes, now now we're talking. (laughs) And let me quote from the wine advocate on this. This is a remarkable operation producing relatively large quantities of wines that offer sensational value. Okay, the winemaker is Grayson Cellars, a California winery. Both their red and their white. The Grayson Cellars Cabernet Sauvignon is going for ten bucks a bottle and got an eighty-eight rating. I'm looking down the chart here. We've got expensive California wines, seventy bucks a bottle, getting an eighty-eight. This is ten bucks a bottle. Give me a break here. And they say their whites are as good as their reds. The Chardonnay Lot Two. Grayson Sellers, 2009, rated again at 89, 10 bucks a bottle. For those of you who want to know where you can get some, phone number 707-812-4443, and they will be very happy to tell you who your local distributor is, and that's Wine of the Month. Well, gentlemen, Greg, Mel, thanks very much. I think we're signing off for the January issue, Risk Management Monthly. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.